You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, Purpose to Promise, we walk through the first 11 chapters of Genesis from God's purpose for his creation to his promise to Abraham. All right, good morning, everybody. Are we awake? Good morning. Happy Father's Day. To, all right, happy Father's Day to everybody. Um, again, we're going to uh, begin uh, chapter 3 today of, uh, of Genesis, and um, it's all good. So let me pray for us, and, and we'll, we'll dive in. Father, I just thank you for your word. Lord, I just um, ask for your help today. Lord, I just ask that you would um, work in our hearts, that your spirit would would help us to see you for who you are, Lord. And Father, I just I just pray. Um, yes, this, as as we read this text, it seems to be all bad news which in many ways it is, but thankfully, Lord, you have given us the rest of the Bible. And most importantly, you have given us Jesus. And Lord, I just pray for your help today. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Beatrice Webb, who was one of the architects of the modern British welfare system, she and her husband and some others founded the London School of Economics. She was a socialist and an activist, a British leader. She kept a diary, and in 1925, she went back and looked at her older diary, and she wrote, in my diary in 1890, this is when she wrote it in 1890, I wrote, I have staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, She's now commenting on this. I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed for wealth and power and how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? We must ask, no amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail And unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? So here's a woman looking at this economic system that they created in London, and she said she staked everything on it in the goodness of human beings. Now, sometime later, 35 years later, she's looking at it like, "Uh uh-oh, we might be in trouble with this, right? Now, this is just the secular worldview on display in 1925, right? The idea that human race is perfectible and that a human utopia is possible through the advancement of science, technology, education, and the correct politics if only given the right conditions. All we need, all right, all we need to reach this utopia is to be educated, informed, and encouraged to progress towards this utopia. But what Beatrice realized looking at the world around her 
is that science and education is not going to fix human nature. See, the problem has been incorrectly identified. Who will explain it? Who explains with the mess <laughs> that we live in today? And it's been a mess <laughs> ever since Genesis 3, brother and sister. Because Genesis 3 is what shows us what is wrong with the world around us. And it's not going to be education that fixes it. It's not going to be technology that fixes it. God fixes it, which we will see as we unfold this passage today. So let me read our passage. We're going to look at Genesis 3, 1 through 7. But I'm going to back up a little bit because I think you can see the bookends. And Nate kind of uh, alluded to it uh, throughout our worship of, of once they were naked and unashamed. And, and we see it at, at verse 7 that now they're naked and they're hiding, right? So let me just read and then we'll continue with what the word has to say. So Genesis 2.25 says this, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of, the, uh, eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So as we see, at some point in time, they were, they were naked before one another and unashamed. And now after this course of events, now the eyes were open, and they knew they were naked. Right? Something has drastically gone wrong here, right? Because we know before their rebellion, before they took of the tree, Adam and Eve uh, listened only to God. That's the only person that they listened to. It was God and, and God and Him alone. The sinless pair had no need to hide from God. They were, they were in a perfect relationship with God before the events of these verses happen. God came first in their love and in their thoughts. And C.S. Lewis adds, and that without painful effort. It was effortlessly that they just loved God purely. And they loved everything around them purely. See, this gravitational pull of self, it did not exist yet. It did not exist yet. Neither one was the center of his or her life. They didn't, they didn't have idols. They, it was all about God and his word, and, and he said it, so we did it. But that's all changed, right? That is all changed. This is the, the problem that plagues humanity. The problem is human rebellion against God's word. 
against what God said. Why did Beatrice look across and say, I mean, I've staked everything on the human goodness, but that is falling on its head. Well, that's why it's falling on its head. Because we continuously, as human beings, rebel against God's word. And that's exactly what this whole passage is about. Is exactly how do we rebel against God's word. It's almost like he, God gave us, okay, I want to slow down the process for you in this narrative as I unfold it for you, right? I'm just going to slow it down a little bit. The, the narrative zooms in frame by frame and gives us a description of, of how this happens within our hearts, within our minds, you know, and how it affects our will. It just kind of slows it down and gives it to us in this narrative form. It is real history. It describes what has happened countless times through the ages. For many of us, it's probably happened from the time we got up to the time we got here, right? The narrative shows us how the heart, the mind, and the will are all involved, how the inner man affects the outer man, and how it all affects the human race. You know, as I read this over and over and over again, it just seemed like to me that it just, it like it, it was showing us within this narrative that this happens within steps. And, and when I use the word steps, I'm just trying to give you guys a picture um, to, to follow along with me. When I say steps, I don't mean that this step happens, then this step happens, then this step happens. I think that the, the three things just happen, you know, congruently. They, they just constantly happen, right? So the first step away from God that, that I, I saw in this is an attitude of the heart. The second step away from God is a lie of the mind. And then the third step away from God in his word is an act of the will. So the story starts with an attitude of the heart. The story starts with an attitude of the heart. Let's read Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See, Satan is speaking through the serpent here. The fall of the human race does not start with an action. It starts with an attitude. It's an attitude. Did God actually say? Did God actually say? Some translations may say it this way. Did God really say? Like your NIV and different ones may say it that way. The serpent is not denying what God said. He is mocking what God said. Did God really say that? Right? The serpent is not saying God did not say it. He's saying it is ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous that he said that. It's laughable. You have done this. You have been in conversations where someone's telling you a story of something that happens, and they, and they come up to the point and they say, can you believe that they actually said this? And you mock what they said. I cannot believe that they actually said that. This is kind of what's happening right here in the garden. The serpent is coming. You, Satan's using the serpent to mock God. To mock him. Did God really say that? The serpent is not denying what God said. He, he'll change that and do that later on when he talks about the lie. He is mocking it. He is trying to change her attitude towards what God said towards his word. He's moving her attitude. He's moving her heart. Did God really say that? Did, did he really say that? 
Here we must remember that God's word was responsible for everything that Eve enjoyed. So you, you see the significance of this. Day, you know, his word created the day, the night, the sun and the moon, the blue skies, the beautiful garden, the flowers, all the creatures, Adam, all came from God's word. Now the serpent slithers in and he mocks God. God really say that? Are you kidding me? See, the fall of man, the rebellion of man starts with an attitude of the heart. So what is, what is the attitude? Let's drill down a little bit harder because I said it's an attitude of the heart. So the attitude is what, what is coming out, but the heart issue is what's separating us from God, right? The attitude is kind of the fruit. The heart issue is the root. So what is that attitude? What is happening here in the mocking? The serpent is introducing the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. That God's word is subject to our judgment. That we are allowed to judge the word of God. That's exactly what the serpent's doing. And that's exactly what we do every time we know better. Every time that we know the word of God, know what sin is, and do it anyway. We are judging it. We are judging God's word and saying, well, no, I don't think that's right. I think this will be better for me. Right? We do this all the time. It's the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. For Eve, she is progressively getting to the point of sin, right? This is like a a, a slow movement. Like her heart has been pricked, right? He's mocking God. Oh, maybe I can't trust God. Maybe there's something more here, right? He's mocking the word of God. Of God, But for us, because of our depravity, because we are born into this sin that has fully resolved, we are born in full judgment mode, brothers and sisters. We are born that way. We are mocking and judging the word of God. We do this from the heart. Our affections are only towards worshiping the created things. That's how Paul describes it. We, we do this naturally because we are born into Adam. We are born into his sin until God comes and saves us and changes our heart. Until we're born again. We believe that those things, the idols we worship, will give us more than what God has secured for us. We are mocking God's word. Let me just give you a, a general illustration this idea, just a simple idea like compassion trumps consumption. Compassion trumps consumption. I, I, I'm not going to a specific place or a, a specific, but I think the whole Bible kind of teaches that, that it's better to give, right? It's better to give of yourself. We are to follow Christ as Christ gave of himself as he came out of heaven, all right, and gave himself to us. That we are to be givers, but we are bent to be consumers. We are bent to gather all that we want and all that we think we need. Thinking others first is more fulfilling than a soundtrack of what about me. See, that's what God says. 
God says to you, thinking others first is more fulfilling than the soundtrack of what about me? What about me? What about me? And what do we do? We mock it. Did God really say that? We become acutely aware of how this attitude works when we are witnessing to others, does it not? When we are put into the atmosphere of actually opening our mouth and sharing our faith, the number one reason it keeps our mouth shut is because we're thinking in our head, if I say this, that person's going to think I'm stupid. And that's exactly what Satan did in the garden. Did God really say that? He's mocking the Word of God. It is when the world around us is mocking God's Word and mocking us for believing such a thing, even if they don't say that sometimes, it is just the soundtrack in our mind, is it not? It's just the soundtrack in our mind. So what Satan is doing here is he is mocking God's Word. And it shows us this, this attitude of heart that, that we've been born with. That we're consistently mocking his word. So the first step away from God is an attitude of the heart. The second step away from God is a, a lie for the mind. It's a lie for the mind. Genesis 3, 2-5 through 5 says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So first, the serpent just flat out lies, and we will get to him in a minute. But let's look at Eve and see what she did with God's word. Right? Let's see what Eve does with God's word. She has an opportunity right here to set the serpent straight, but she doesn't do it. As she plays back God's word to him, as she speaks God's word to him, she changes it a little bit. Right? Eve gives her own version of God's word. First she diminishes God's word, then adds to his word, and then softens his word. She first diminishes God's word, then adds to his word, and then softens his word. Look, look with me in Genesis 2.16. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden is what God said. That's what God said. You sure shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. She leaves out every, minimizing the provision of the Lord. And since we are looking at this word, let me just point out real quick. We're looking at this word Lord, right? Since it's right here. Notice that in Genesis 1, um, it was Elohim. Right? And then when we moved into Genesis 2, it was the Lord God. Notice how Satan and Eve recognize God. They go back to Elohim. They don't use Lord God. Right? They just go back to Elohim. And, and, and this is important. This is a subtle thing. Something that Moses put in there that Israel, would, when they were reading this, would absolutely pick it out. In other words, he's not no longer that personal God, Lord God, right? He's just a God. Notice how when Eve speaks, that's what she uses. And when the serpent speaks, 
That's what it uses. She minimizes his word by discounting his generosity and starts down a slippery slope. Then she adds to God's word. So she minimizes his word, and then she adds to God's word. Neither shall you touch it. God didn't say that. Neither shall you touch it, is what Eve adds to it. We see a shift in the understanding of God's character. He is not as generous. He is much stricter. He can't touch it, right? Can't touch it. She's adding to his word. He never said you couldn't touch it. He said there's, there's a tree that you can't eat of. And we've experienced this, have we not? Whenever we think somebody is limiting something for us, we exaggerate and add to it, right? I mean, many of you probably been in this. You've had a friend over, and you and your friend get rowdy or doing something wrong, and all of a sudden, Dad comes down and drops the hammer and says, look, you, you need to send little Johnny home because you guys are wrecking the house, and what happens? Little Billy runs to Mommy and says, Mommy, Daddy said Johnny can never come over here again. Adds to it. Because when you think we're being restricted, we like to add to it. You, maybe you've been in, in a situation where where you're at work and you've got a co-worker that's, that's just always late, right? And the boss calls him in and says, look, George, you're here and, and I like your work, but you really got to work on getting here on time. Is there something that we could do to, to help fix this? That, you know, is there anything that we could do? But we really need you to get here on time so we can start the project on time. Well, then George comes out and the, and the co-worker says, well, what did the boss want? Well, the boss said, if I'm late one more time, I'm getting fired. We do this all the time. When we think that we're getting restricted, we go overboard and add to it. It's kind of what Eve is doing with God's word. She's adding to it. She's adding to it. When we don't like a prohibition or a warning, we magnify its strictness. That's kind of what she's doing. He, he, he didn't say anything about touching it, but she added this to it. Do you see how it's, it's slowly pulling her away from God and his word. We add to what God says so that we can justify what we believe. God's word is unreasonable. It's unreasonable. We Churches do this all the time. People do this all the time. Religion does this all the time. We add to God's word to either control or to make things happen a certain way. This is why we need to preach Christ crucified in grace and not works righteousness. We add to what God says so that we can justify what we believe God's word is unreasonable. Because you know, come on, if we're being corrected, if, if there's something that we really want to do, but the word of God says we don't want to do it, we're, we're in that wrestling thing, right? So what we do, we, we try to justify what we're doing. Well, that's just too strict. But God has one purpose, and one purpose only. And it isn't to make you miserable, brother and sister. <laughs> it's to bless you. It's to care for you and love you. So it's either we want to declare his word unreasonable, or so we can trust in ourselves instead of God. Right? So Eve diminishes God's word. She adds to his word. And finally, Eve softens God's word by merely saying, lest you die. She left out the word surely. 
the certitude of death was removed. Right? We like, well, I've done this sin six or seven times, but nothing's really happened, so I, I want to go with Eve and lest you die, not surely you will die. Right? This happens a lot. This happens so fast that it's even hard to catch sometimes. So we see Eve who diminished God's word. She adds to his word. And finally Eve softened God's word, right? So in Eve, in one breath, she did all this. By just repeating wrongly what, the, what God has said back to the serpent. Now Satan, he just flat out lied. The serpent just flat out lied. You will not surely die. That's what he tells her. You, there's no way. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened. Here's what he's saying. He is, he's saying this. God, if you obey him, he will keep you down. God knows if you do this, you will broaden your horizons. You, you, will, you will have this great gift. And you will be so awesome. And God just doesn't want that for you. He just doesn't want that for you. <laughs> that's, what, that's, the, that's what he's doing here. Right? Let me just make it simpler. What Satan is doing is trying to get into the mind of the human race is this one thing. If you obey God, you will miss out. You will miss out. If you obey God, you won't be happy. It will keep you from being all you want to be. You will not thrive. You will not flourish. Right? Tim Keller gets to the heart of this, and he says this. What's so extremely interesting to see here is that Satan knows what is really crucial to destroy. Notice Satan does not go after the existence of God. He doesn't say, the only way I'm going to destroy the human race is to get everybody to disbelieve in God. Heck no. He knows the whole human race can believe in God. Practically, the whole human race does believe in God, and it's a mess. That's not the issue. He also doesn't actually go after the law or the will or the holiness of God. He doesn't say, oh, God doesn't care what you do. He doesn't say, God doesn't say you can't eat of the tree. He doesn't deny the existence of God. He doesn't deny the law of God, the will of God, the holiness of God. He denies the goodness of God. He denies the goodness and the love and the grace and the goodwill of God behind all those decrees. This is what Satan goes after. He goes after the goodness of God. Right? You won't surely die. Because, man, if you eat that tree, it's going to be so awesome. Right? He goes after his goodness. Man, how many times are we butt up against that decision where, where the Holy Spirit's convicted us and we're staring at a decision and we got to decide what is good for us? Right? What is good for us? Well, I can guarantee you one thing. Our maker, the one that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, the one that, that made everything, the one that formed man and then formed the woman, that God only has one goal, and that's our goodness. 
That is our good. That is his goal. That's what he is done everything for. Right? Satan says if if you obey God, you can't trust his goodwill. You can't trust him. You're doing going to have to take your life into your own hands. You're going to have to take your life in your own hands. See, that lie went in, and that lie is in my heart, and that lie is in your heart. Right? I'll, I'll take control of my life. I'll be in control. When, when Jesus says, if you come to me, you're coming to die, to die to self. And we hear, we see why he had to say that. Because we've been born into this sin. See, we're kind of seeing how it was walked through, how, how, how um, Moses kind of rid it out, or how God wrote it out for us. But this, this all happens like this, and it's all coming at us all at once. But if we, we can diagnose the problem, if we know that it's happening, then we can use God's word to fight it, to push back against it. We have the Holy Spirit helping us. Here's what it does to us. I know I'm not supposed to hold on to a grudge against another person and try to seek revenge, but boy, it feels good to seek revenge. You are tempted. Do you know why? There would be no temptation unless underneath you believe that the lie that you simply cannot trust God. That you simply can't trust in his word when he says, I will fix all the wrongs. I have a plan. I am sovereign. I have a uh, sovereign over everything. We don't trust that. We don't believe that. Because what will happen? What, now let's just be honest. Maybe it's just my heart. I'll speak from my heart. Because when, whenever I'm put in that situation where it's like, man, I really want to get revenge. I really want to drop the hammer on this person. But God says, no, I'll take care of it. What is really at the heart of it, really at the heart of it for Joe, is man, God might just give them grace. Which reveals my heart because I'm not seeing the grace that he has given me. Right? I'm not seeing the grace that he has given me. Whenever I want the hammer to fall down on this person, I'm forgetting the grace that he gave me. And I'm forgetting that the Bible and, and God has told us that I will take care of that. You just love them. I know it's hard. Do you see how this works within us? How this battle rages. That's why, that's why I think Paul uses the, the, always goes to this idea of war that's happening within us. Because we're having this battle daily, right? We, we, yes, we are born again. Yes, we are in the kingdom, but the, the kingdom hasn't fully come, right? We are being sanctified one for one glory to another. We are saved and being saved. It's a process. I mean, we can go back to right here to Genesis 3 and figure out why are we, what's going on here? Am I, have I diminished his word? Have I just flat out changed his word and lied about it? 
Do you see how you can take this and apply this to your life every single day? Have I added to the word? Right? Have I just flat out changed it? Have I just changed it? So where are you today, brother and sister? And I, I don't want the message to be crossed here. I don't want you to obey for obedience sake. I want you to obey because there is fullness of life like you have never experienced before. I, Lord knows I don't do this perfectly, but when I do, <laughs> when I do, it's like joy, joy that nothing that my heart chooses seems to ever compare to. So the first step is an attitude of the heart. The second step is the, is the lie for the mind. And the third step is an act of the will. It's an act of the will. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so all this, so she saw it. It's good for food. All these, all these things that we just talked about has happened within her heart, within her mind. She's been lied to. God's word has been changed. She has this attitude that oh, God's word is now mocked. Now she sees, oh, that food's good for me. And that is what is the light to the eyes and, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what was the great sin? Well, she just ate of a tree, come on. I mean, I bet you some of you guys that, that, that talk to people that don't believe yet and, and maybe witness to people that they're like, you believe, what was the big deal, right? Eating of the tree. What's the big deal? What was the great horrible action? What is it that ruined the human race? Well, yeah, they did eat of the tree. That simple act of the will. So what is so bad about that? What is the big deal about the tree? What was the logic behind the command? It was just simply a command, by the way. It was, do you trust God? Do you believe God? Do you, right, not diminish his word, not change his word, not lie about his word? Do you just trust my command not to eat that tree? There's no logic behind it. God just said, do it. But we so many times want that logic, don't we? We want to know why. Well, sometimes we get why. Sometimes he even... Puts it in his Bible, why? But many times, he just says, what? Trust me. Trust me. I mean, I get don't murder and don't steal, right? I, my mind can figure those out, right? I see why God would say that, but the tree? So just think with me for a minute. What if God gave them a logical reason? What if the logical reason was this? What if the logical reason was, if you take of that tree, everything is going to be a mess from here on out, right? I mean, if, if you're thinking about this whole scene, if you're thinking about how God would do this, our minds, that's kind of how we think many times. Why didn't God just tell them that if they ate the tree, that everything's going to be a mess, that every human being ever born from that point on is going to be born into this depravity, that's always going to be fighting and rebelling against God, against you, God, the one that made them. Why didn't he just give them that logic? Stop and think about it. Because if he gave them that logic... They are in the driver's seat. 
they get to choose. Well, hmm, I'm not going to eat that tree because if I eat, don't eat that tree, then all these people won't suffer. Who's in control? The human being's in control. God's not in control anymore. So it's just a command. It's just saying, brother and sister, do this. It'll work out good for you. Brother and sister, do that. It'll work out good for you. Brother and sister, love your neighbor. It'll work out good for you. See, because if he gave them the logic behind it, it would change their motive for not eating the tree. It would change their motive. In, in, in business, we have um, what, what, what you call cost-benefit analysis. I, I use this a lot when I was um, managing pizza restaurants. Whenever we were doing marketing, right, just to try to give you this idea in a different realm to try to make sense of this just a little bit more. I can control, as a manager of a pizza place, I can control three things as far as marketing goes. I can either send people out to door hang houses, or I can do what the post office calls a zip code dump, or I can pull labels off of my computer, print them out, and mail them out. And what I got to do is I got to analyze and figure out the cost versus effectiveness. In other words, if I spend X amount of dollars, how much return will I get? If I spend X amount of dollars here, how much return will I get? And this is the same idea. If God gave us the explanation, if he would have gave Adam and Eve the explanation, then they would be in the driver's seat making a cost analysis idea of, well, if I do this, then this will happen. But if I don't do this, this won't happen. And the whole time, it means that they are in control. Instead of God just saying, I said don't do this. Trust me. Does that not resonate throughout your whole life and your walk with God? That you're constantly battling that? God's saying you can treat me as God or you can put yourself in the place of God. Do we realize that virtually everything that is wrong with us in this world is you and I putting ourselves in the place of God? This is the problem. If you don't forgive somebody, it is because you're putting yourself in the place of God. You think you know what they deserve. If you live to obtain possessions and wealth and to do all that you want to do in life, you are believing the lie that God does not have your best interest in mind. You are putting yourself in the place of God. And we do this over and over again. And brother and sister, it's because we were born right here into Genesis 3. And our hearts just constantly do this. Constantly. And for the same reason, think about this. So many people will say, but man, when God saves me, when he causes me to be born again, when he causes me, why doesn't he just eradicate all my sin so I don't have to battle with this anymore? Go back to the cost analysis. Then you wouldn't trust him. You would be in the driver's seat again. There's, there would be no fighting there's no suffering. There's none, none of that. You, you wouldn't have to trust him anymore. 
What a good God. What a good God. See, brother and sister, there is hope for us today. Because there is someone who crushes the serpent's head, who deals with the tree, the sin that happens at the tree, deals with the lie, and even deals with the mocking. We read earlier today about Jesus in the garden struggling about a command that involves a tree. It is called the cross. He knows he has to go to the cross and die for the sins and pay the penalty we owe, and he's struggling. God told Adam and Eve to obey me, and you will live and flourish. God told Jesus, obey me, and you will be crushed. And he did for us. Here's what he did. He, he turned the tree of death, the cross, into a tree of life for you and me. This is Jesus taking care of the sin at the tree. Because he obeyed the Father perfectly. And he went to the tree. And he hung on the tree for me and you. So that our sins may be forgiven. We put ourselves in the place of God and Jesus put himself where we deserve to be on the cross facing judgment. That deals with the tree and it also deals with the lie. Because is God good? Well, absolutely God is good. You know why? Because he gave his only son so that we may be saved. Brother and sister, you can trust God. He died for you. He loves you. You have to see Jesus Christ climbing a tree of death and turning that tree of death for him into a tree of life for you and me. That will finally begin to take the toxins out of your soul. And you'll finally start to actually believe God loves you and you can trust him. See, that's the only thing that will take care of it. It's the only crowbar strong enough to get you out of the driver's seat. It's seeing Christ on the cross. Jesus takes care of the sin at the tree, the lie that he's not good because he is good, and he takes care of the mocking. You know why? Because as he hung on that tree for us, he was mocked in our place. And he was still God when he was hanging on that tree. And he could have very well struck everybody down dead, but he didn't. <laughs> and he stayed on that tree. And he stayed on the cross, securing eternity for us. You are in Christ. And nobody, regardless of the amount of mocking they can do to you, can ever take that away. Do you believe this today, brother and sister? Do you trust him today? Shall we pray? Father, Lord, I just ask that we today would trust in you. That we would not add to your word. That we would believe you wholly. Completely. 
that when we read your word, we would not doubt your word, that we would not think that you are just not having our best interest in mind. See, these are all of what our heart is producing. But you have given us your word. You have given us your spirit. You have given us armor. And you have given us a faith family to help us fight this each and every day. Lord, I, I pray today, if, if there's one here that has been believing the lie, did God really say, believing the mocking, Lord, that they would stop trusting in whatever they may be trusting in, which is probably themselves, and turn from that and fully and completely trust in you today. Lord, I pray that you would work through your spirit to change hearts so they may repent and trust in you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.